Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Fundamentals of Torah for Non-Jews. Thank you all for joining me. Uh, I'm Doug Taylor. I think I've met most of you. Gail, I can't recall if you've been on before, and Mona. Uh, but uh, welcome. Glad to have you in the class. Linda, I see you're having a blizzard, and uh, we actually have some snow out here in the northwest, which is quite unusual for us. Um, so hope everybody is warm and dry. Um, I'd like to start by covering off a question that Pat raised way back a number of weeks ago uh, about the Noahide laws and whether a, uh, a Noahide or what we would call a Ben Noah, a, a child of Noah, is um, obligated in the command to procreate. Uh, and so I want to go back to some information that was shared in a tape by Rabbi Chait, uh, Rabbi Israel Chait of Far Rockaway, New York. He's the Rosh Yeshiva of uh, Yeshiva B'nai Torah in Far Rockaway, uh, a gentleman who spent uh, untold amounts of time with Noahides and produced, uh, I think, roughly about 100 one-hour lectures for Noahides a number of years ago. Uh, and he addressed this question, uh, along with others, around uh, the idea of whether the, the Noahide is required to keep the seven Noahide laws because of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai or uh, because they were given by God prior to Sinai. In other words, what, what actually obligates uh, the Ben Noah? And it is definitely the event at Sinai. Uh, the Noach is required to keep the seven Noahide laws because uh, of Sinai, even though God gave the laws to Noah. Um, what we have at Sinai was really the final structure and establishment uh, of the system. And the system of the Torah and the law, the halacha, was given to Israel. They have the responsibility to... Uh, interpret it, to guard the law, uh, and uh, make interpretations of it, including the seven laws of Noah. There was ne never any uh, separate entrusting of it after that. It was all entrusted to Israel as sort of priests, if you will, uh, for the world. I know the term priest is kind of a loaded term, so I use that with some uh, trepidation, but uh, I think you hopefully will understand what I mean. And then the rest of the world is, is the laity. Um, and so uh, uh, they were the ones that were given that responsibility. And interestingly, we have uh, some scriptural support of that in Psalms, uh, in Psalms 147.19, where it says, uh, he speaks his word to Jacob, his laws and his statutes to Israel. Uh, he did not do so to any other nation. So the group charged with understanding the details of all this is Israel, and at Sinai they were charged with keeping law and disseminating it. So for purposes of us, who are all downstream in history, if, if I can put it that way, everything starts from that point, from Sinai. The whole system for the world um, was set up. So uh, even though laws were given to Noah before that, Sinai was essentially the final point of, of setting up all of that and responsibility. So, and at that time, even though um, uh, Noah was commanded uh, on 
with the commandment to procreate. Uh, let me grab my my homage here. Um, that commandment did not carry over after Sinai. Uh, there's a very interesting point, by the way, when we get to uh, Genesis 9-7, if you have a Chumash with you and you want to uh, take a look at that. Um, at the beginning of the chapter in Genesis 9, uh, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and everything that moves on earth and in all the fish of the sea in your hand they are given. Um, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you like the green herbage. I have given you everything and so on and so forth. And then it says down at verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply on it. Now, it's a very interesting side point. There are no uh, extraneous words in the Torah. So there's no repetition just, as I understand it, for the sake of repetition. But if something is said twice, there's a reason. And in verse 1, it says, be fruitful and multiply. And in verse 7, it says, be fruitful and multiply. And I believe it's Rashi that comments on this and indicates, yes, it is Rashi, that says um, that in verse 1, it's a blessing, because it does say God bless them on his sons. And in verse 7, it's a commandment. But when we get to Sinai, that commandment is not repeated or made uh, a uh, requirement for Noahides. And so uh, that puts us in kind of a, a slightly different situation. Because at that time, the commandment to procreate, this is at Sinai, is made obligatory upon the Jewish people and not upon the Noahides. And it's very clear from the Torah that Noah and his children were obligated in this, but today, in our time, the Noahides are obligated because of Sinai, and that commandment did not carry over. And the Talmud is very clear on this point as well, so that we do not have an obligation to have children. <clears throat> so this is an important difference in why we would want to know, well, is our obligation uh, about the law because of Sinai, or is it prior to Sinai? Now, that sort of raises the question, well, why did the change occur? Um, you know, what, what caused that? The, the event at Sinai, the evidence of that event, and we talked about this in our earlier class, is that that event heard by approximately 2 million people provided the basis for all of mankind uh, going forward. So why were we commanded to be fruitful and multiply before that, and why weren't we after that? Um, and Linda, you're right. The, the key word here is obligation. In other words, do, does the halacha, the law, require me to produce a son and a daughter? And uh, the answer is it does not, although I certainly have the voluntary opportunity to do that. And Rabbi Chade held uh, this way, as he raised uh, that question, why, why the change? And he said that as, as soon as God entered into a covenant with man, there had to be an obligation to procreate in order for the species to continue. Uh, now, before the Torah was given, there was only one group that had a covenant with God, and that was the Benach, the children of Noah. 
But once Sinai occurred, the commandment could be fulfilled through Israel on a mandatory basis and the Ben Noach on a voluntary basis because now you have this separate group, Israel, with whom God has uh, entered into a covenant. So the obligation to have children didn't have to be on all of mankind since now there was this category of, of Israel. Before that, there was just one group. But once Sinai took place, then it wasn't necessary for all of mankind to have that obligation as long as there was at least one group that had the obligation so that the human species was, would continue. And that group was Israel. So the entire world didn't have to be burdened with that responsibility on a go-forward basis. Uh, and so it became an obligation of Israel, not an obligation uh, on the Noahides. Pat, I'm hoping that answers your question. Uh, sorry it took me so long to research that, but I did want to do the research before I came back uh, with a response for you. Any questions on that point before we go on? Okay. Uh, what I would like to do now is something we've talked about doing uh, previously, and it's now the time to get to that, and that is to get into some detail about the seven Noahide laws. As you know, there are six prohibitions, uh, prohibition against idolatry, blasphemy, murder, theft, certain sexual relations, and eating the limb of a living animal. And then one uh, commandment that's sometimes considered a positive commandment, which, which is to establish courts of law, although that is also thought of as a negative commandment because its purpose is to enforce uh, those six prohibitions. So let's dig into these a little bit and uh, see what we can learn with regard to them. And what I'm, I'm taking the material that I'm about to present to you from uh, several different sources. One is a book uh, called Maimonides, the Commandments, which is a, a summary of the 613 uh, commandments. The other is a book called The Seven Laws of Noah by Aaron Lichtenstein, uh, published by... Uh, the Rabbi Jacob Joseph School Press in New York. What Aaron Lichtenstein did was to go through and map, if you will, the details of the seven Noahide laws against the 613 commandments. As you may recall from one of our previous classes, we talked about the issue of saying, well, gee, 613 commandments for the Jews and only seven for the Noahides. Seems like the Noahides have a pretty good deal here. But in fact, the seven Noahide laws are more like seven categories uh, or themes of commandments. And the 613 are very detailed commandments. So he went through and essentially went, uh, went through the sources to, to say, well, if we look at, for example, theft, what are the specifics of the 613 that would fall under that? Uh, because there, as we will see, there are some intricacies I mean, we can certainly look at these and say, well, yeah, you shouldn't commit theft. Well, what exactly does that mean? And how, you know, perhaps the most obvious one from this list is, well, you know, prohibition against certain sexual relations. Well, which ones? You know, what about this? What about that? What about the other? Uh, and those are very, uh, uh, those are specified in detail in the 613. So let's go through these and, uh, and see what we can learn. The first one is about idolatry. And 
to quote Rabbi Moshe Ben Chaim of Masora.org, uh, idolatry is defined as attributing the ability of change in the world to something other than God or the laws of nature he created. So that's a, that's a broad definition, but let's take a look at what that means in some very practical terms. Some specific topics around idolatry. The first one is that there is a negative commandment uh, against believing in or ascribing any deity to any but him. Um, so, which comes from, you know, thou shalt have no other gods beside me. Or beside me. Uh, so, we can't be ascribing any deity power to any but the Creator Himself. Uh, and something that we haven't brought up in this class uh, yet, but, but there are many names used in the Torah for God, uh, and one of them that I'll probably refer to a lot is Hashem. Uh, in the Hebrew term, in the Hebrew language, Shem means name, and Ha is uh, about as close as we can get to the article the. So there's not a separate word for the in Hebrew as I understand the language, but instead the, the term ha is attached to the front of the word. So Shem means name, Hashem means the name. And it is a way of referring to God, to that uh, four-letter um, name called the Tetragrammaton, which we uh, don't pronounce, uh, but it's a, a, you could call it a shorthand way of referring to, uh, to the Creator. So we're not supposed to to ascribe any power to any but him. And Maimonides, interestingly, includes five classes of heretics uh, under this commandment. Uh, the first one being a person who says that there's no God and that the world has no sovereign ruler. Uh, that person is considered uh, a heretic, and as I understand it, in violation of this commandment. The second is a person who says that there is a sovereign power, but that power is vested in two or more beings. So there's two or more entities kind of running things uh, in the universe. That also would, would fall under this uh, classification of idolatry. The third is one who says that there is, yes, one sovereign ruler, but he's a body and has form. Because by definition, the creator has no physical form or body. Uh, that we would be able to see or even imagine. Uh, so that is probably very much, uh, you know, in opposition to uh, several or at least one of the popular religions uh, that you're probably all familiar with. Um, another class of heretics under this would be one who denies that uh, God alone is the first cause and rock of the universe. So. If you, if a person were to think that there's some other cause out there uh, going on, that would be a, a problem under this. And then someone who worships any other power besides him to serve as a mediator between himself and the sovereign of the universe. So if I say, well, yeah, there's a God, but the way I get to him is through this other entity or through this other uh, power or through this other person, then or through a person then that would be uh, a classification of idolatry uh, from Maimonides' standpoint, as I understand it. 
And feel free, by the way, to ask you know questions or raise questions as we go along. Uh, but want to make sure that this is making sense so far. Good to go. I'll assume since I don't see anybody writing anything and lining up for the microphone that we're good. Okay. Um, second commandment that falls under the uh, prohibition against idolatry is the prohibition against making images for the purpose of worship. And it doesn't really matter whether we make them ourselves or direct somebody else to make them for us. We're not supposed to make any image uh, for the purpose of worship. Third prohibition is one against making an idol for somebody else to worship, uh, which seems you know, fairly obvious and to fall out, from, to, uh, fall out from that. And then there's a prohibition against making figures <coughs> of human beings. Now, this requires a little explanation. This applies to figures of human beings even if they aren't made for purposes of worship. And it, rely, or it applies to human figures that are made in relief, that is, in three dimensions. Um, so it would not apply to two-dimensional human figures, such as a painting or a picture. It also does not apply to a three-dimensional uh, image that would be made in concave. So kind of, if you can imagine a, a sculpture made of, a, say, a, a person that was made by cutting into the surface of the stone, so you have a concave uh, figure. Uh, but convex would be a problem, because you're seeing that then uh, in relief. Interestingly, uh, and the same is true with figures of, of uh, animals and, uh, and birds and so forth. Um, interestingly, it is forbidden to make images of the sun, the moon, and the stars, um, even in the two-dimensional form. Uh, and that would include uh, uh, printing them. Now, a couple things here about the animals and human beings and so forth. Um, as we discussed, it doesn't apply to things like painting. Um, and a way that you can deal with a three-dimensional object uh, if you had one, uh, is to break off a limb. Uh, so, for example, if I had a perfect statue of a human being and for some reason I wanted to hang on to it and I broke a foot off, uh, then it's not a problem, uh, as I understand it. But one that is perfectly made would be uh, an issue. Uh, now, with regard to... Uh, images of the sun, the moon, and the stars, those are prohibited uh, in two dimensions. And uh, there's a very good reason for this um, that Masora.org wrote about because uh, a reader wrote in and said, you know, is any picture or TV show or forms of art or photos or decorative relics or pottery in the form of animals or people and so forth improper to have around? And Nasora's answer was, there's no problem having them around if they're merely decoration and not worshipped objects, but one is prohibited from creating three-dimensionally experienced objects in three-dimensional forms, such as we experience on Earth. In other words, think about how we experience animals and people. We experience them in three dimensions. So we're prohibited from creating three-dimensionally experienced objects. Um, 
but we can make those in two dimensions, like a drawing, or in three dimensions, but incomplete, so that an arm is missing. But things like the sun and the moon, which we don't experience in three dimensions. Remember, we see those at a huge distance. So when we look up, all we see is really two dimensions, uh, because we only look at them from one angle. Those are prohibited to be made in drawings, which are in two dimensions, because we would thereby be creating a representation of how we perceive them. So three dimensions for human beings and animals and birds, creating those figures would be prohibited, creating something in two dimensions of the sun, the moon, and the stars uh, is prohibited. It is my understanding, and I am not a halakhic authority on this, but it is my understanding that snapping a digital image, a digital image uh, photograph of two-dimensional things or pe people and so forth is not prohibited because a digital image isn't creating a picture, but that printing it would be. Uh, and again, you would to don't please do not rely on me as a halakhic expert on that. But that is my understanding. And Pat, you've asked, so we can't draw pictures of them. That's correct. That's my understanding. You can, we cannot draw pictures of the sun, the moon, and the stars. And this actually came up for us in a very practical way, for those of you that ever played Pictionary. Um, you know, we do that with our family sometimes. And we, we suddenly realize, you know what, because very often if I'm trying to make some kind of a uh, representation to somebody of something, I would draw a circle with some little dots coming around the outside up in the upper corner and you know that would be the sun and I realized wow that would technically be prohibited um, <clears throat> so uh, we uh, we came up with the uh, the approach for our family of if we want normally you're not allowed to use letters in Pictionary but we said okay we'll uh, we'll agree that if you want to uh, represent the sun, you uh, draw a big S, uh, and the moon would be a big M, uh, and so forth, just for purposes of that game. But yes, uh, that's, that is my understanding, Pat, that we are prohibited from doing that. Any, any questions about that before we go on? Okay. Um, there are a number of other commandments associated with idolatry. Uh, there's prohibitions against bowing down to an idol. Um, and the term idol means any object of worship other than God. Uh, so that would include bowing down, sacrificing to, pouring a libation for, burning incense before an idol, anything like that. Uh, similarly with worshiping them. Uh, Besides the prohibition of bowing down, the worshiping prohibition uh, in, is referring to uh, worshiping, worshiping idols in the manner in which they are ordinarily worshipped. So, for example, if a particular idol is ordinary worship, ordinarily worshipped by kissing it, then you would be prohibited from, or we would be prohibited from doing that. Um, and uh, in Maimonides' uh, Mishnah Torah, uh, he states, you know, a Gentile who worships false gods is liable provided he worships them in an accepted manner. Um, and there's a footnote, interestingly, there that says, in addition to the sin of serving an idol in its appropriate manner, 
Uh, the death penalty is also given for bowing down to one, sacrificing to it, uh, or bowing to it, sacrificing to it, offering incense to it, pouring libations to it, even if the idol is generally not served uh, in that manner. So uh, generally we want to stay away from those things. Uh, there is also uh, a prohibition against handing over offspring to Molech, and you may have read uh, about that in the Torah. Um, and according to uh, the book Maimonides, The Commandments, it says, by this prohibition we're forbidden to hand over some of our offspring to the idol known at the time of giving of the Torah as Molech. And this form of idolatry uh, apparently consisted of kindling a fire and fanning up the flame, and then the father would take some of his offspring and hand them over to the priest of this idol, uh, and then cause them to pass through the fire from one side to the other. Now, Maimonides holds that the child was not burned in this process, although Nachmanides, another great Torah scholar, and other scholars hold that the child was burned. So there's a difference of opinion on what actually came out from that. But uh, that's not something that I'm aware of, even is conducted anywhere on the planet at this time. Uh, although you never know, but we're certainly uh, prohibited from that. Um, any questions on that? Uh, you can't go through fire without being burned. Pat, I'm not sure if you're asking a question or if you're making uh, a statement. What could be possible, I've sort of mentally imagined this in, in my mind. Uh, okay, just a statement, thank you. Is that I suppose what's possible in, in, from Maimonides' standpoint is if you've got a nice old bonfire going and you've got flames, uh, you know, up, you uh, hand a child, you know, across through the flame really fast, uh, sort of like, you know, flicking your finger through a candle flame. If you do it fast enough, uh, you won't get burned. If you do it slow enough, you will. I have, I'm, I'm not certain if that's what they're referring to, but um, it's certainly you know, isn't something that we want to do with uh, with our children. There is also a, a prohibition against practicing the sorcery of Ob. Uh, this has to do with a person who would apparently burn a certain incense and perform some ritual and then pretend that he hears a voice speaking from under his armpit and that voice would supposedly answer his questions. Uh, I mean, it, you know, when you explain it, it sounds pretty wacky, uh, but that was apparently something that was done. Uh, similarly, practicing the sorcery of uh, Yide Oni, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, according to uh, Maimonides, uh, the commandments, uh, that one involved uh, a sorcery where a person would take the bone of a bird and put it in his mouth, and burn incense and recite certain prayers and perform some kind of ritual until he was in a condition uh, akin to fainting, and then he would fall into a trance in which he would predict the future, uh, which sounds about as, as wacky as the armpit stuff, but uh, again, you know, there's some things going on in the world today, which we'll talk about in just a minute, uh, that also seem fairly wacky, but people do them. So. Um, 
that is another one that's specifically identified as a prohibition under idolatry. We're also prohibited from, you know, studying idolatrous practices. Uh, the uh, uh, specific commandment indicates that we're forbidden to take an interest in idolatry or study its practices. Uh, and the comment is made merely thinking about these matters and inquiring into these illusions leads fools to frequent idols and to worship them. Uh, I think that the danger that's, that can be of a concern is that people start looking into this and they think, well, this is kind of interesting. Maybe I should try this or uh, something along that line. What I think is important to keep in mind about all of this stuff is that it's fake. There are no other powers out there. Uh, there's only God. And all of this stuff is just made up by people. Um, now, we could say, well, this all just sounds kind of crazy. Nobody would do this today. Well, not so sure. Uh, where, where can we see any of this come into play? Anybody familiar with a case where not necessarily the specifics, but the general idea of what we're talking about might come into play today? Pat, it's true. You certainly, as far as I know, the uh, question is, can a person study them in order to know what not to do? Uh, I think you're certainly allowed to understand the commandment of idolatry and what it consists of in order to avoid it. Uh, what I think that the commandment is saying is not to get down into, well, gee, let's do a whole study on, you know, how they did the bone of the bird in their mouth and how did they place it and, and what kind of rituals did they say and, all, you know, getting into a whole study around that. But, yes, to the best of my understanding, we're certainly allowed to know enough to know what not to do and what constitutes idolatry so that we can, uh, we can get away from it. Any thoughts about where you, you might see this operating in today's world? Pop stars and athletes, yes, very interesting. Some interesting uh, things we'll come up with. For example, um, you might see a championship golfer, or any golfer for that matter, uh, who makes certain to wear the same shirt for today's tournament that he wore when he won the last three tournaments. And what he may say is, well, that's my lucky shirt. What is really happening in that circumstance? Is he, in fact, attributing power to the shirt, which, of course, has no power in the, uh, beyond simply covering the body and, and keeping it warm? Uh, but there's, there's a sense to, you know, gee, there's something special about that. I've got to, I've got to do that. Or, uh, you know, when I was growing up, it was lucky rabbit's foot. You know, you'd wear one uh, or, or keep one in your pocket with keys attached to it and so forth. Uh, nowadays, in, in certain circles, there's an idea that if you wear a red thread around your wrist, that somehow that's going to protect you from bad things in one way or another. Um, and, and Mona, you're absolutely right. How many things do we actually do that originated as a pagan ritual? Uh, lots of things get carried over and, and we don't realize them. It is my understanding that um, the whole thing around Christmas trees uh, came about because there was, in fact, a festival of trees that uh, took place way, way back a long time ago. 
and that the early Christians, uh, wanting to kind of get everybody into the into the Christian fold, uh, combined that with their idea of when they thought Jesus was born, and so now you have this tradition that's been carried uh, on on through that we bring this tree into the house, and you'll notice that gifts are put underneath it which means that in order to get the gifts, what do you have to do? You have to bow down to it. Uh, and uh, Jack, good point. The whole idea of knock on wood, uh, which, you know, wh why would we say that? Why would, why would that have anything to do with anything? Uh, lots of, of different things like that uh, that have absolutely nothing to do with reality. They are totally man-made ideas uh, about how things work or how we hope to be able to manipulate events to our advantage. Uh, and they're just plain ultimately wrong. Um, they ascribe power to things that have no power, which uh, unfortunately pulls us away from the world of reality. Uh, one of the most important thinking skills that can help us in this area is one we talked about uh, several sessions back is the importance of not attributing cause and effect unless there's adequate evidence to do so. Uh, so, ah, Jack, thank you. And, you know, cross on your windshield when a black cat crosses your path. Or uh, don't, uh, don't walk under an, uh, uh, a ladder. Uh, or don't step on the cracks in the sidewalk. Or, you know, all this stuff. Uh, when we think about it, is just craziness. Uh, spilled salt, Mona, thank you, tossed over the shoulder, and just black cats in general. Uh, yeah, broken glass and lots of different things that, that people, you know, think somehow has some power in a situation, when in fact it has absolutely none. Uh, so, yep, Mona, you're right, broken mirror, uh, lots of different things. Any questions about idolatry before we move on to our next commandment? Okay. Let's move on to blasphemy. What is blasphemy? Uh, it's a very interesting question. <clears throat> I will suggest to you based on my studies and my learning with the rabbis, that blasphemy is cursing the Creator. And we use the euphemism blessing God or blessing the Creator so that we don't have to actually say cursing God. Um, the Talmud takes this up. Uh, now, this is a, it can be a capital offense. So you have to imagine a court proceeding well, let's say that somebody comes in and, and accuses someone else of blasphemy, <clears throat> of, um, of blessing the Creator, so to speak. Well, <clears throat> the court doesn't want to get itself in a position where uh, it's actually doing what it's prohibiting in the course of having the trial. So the Torah uses the term Josie, in place of the term for God so that they can talk about it in the court and not inadvertently transgress the prohibition against blasphemy. 
So the Talmud describes and goes into quite a bit of detail about this, that blessing God, and I'm using that euphemism, means a form of the statement, may Josie destroy Josie. Okay, may Josie destroy Josie. So it's, it's using, uh, and again, Josie is being used in the place of God. And that a statement along that line is uh, what blasphemy is defined as. And again, they use this in the court situations, so they would avoid the possibility of actually doing it. Um, and uh, Jack, thank you. In, in Job, you may be familiar with, uh, I believe it's his wife who comes in and says, look, why don't you just bless God and die? Uh, or they, they use that term, uh, rather than using the word curse. Uh, now, what would happen in the court situation is uh, they would go through and get all the testimony and go through all the court proceedings using the term Josie, so that no one actually committed the sin. And then at the end, they would clear the courtroom, and one witness would say what he actually heard the accused person say. Then the second witness would confirm it, and with, without having to apparently say it, he would say, yes, I heard what that person just said. And then, ju then the judges would rend their clothes, and they would pronounce judgment. Um, so that's the way it would work in the court. Now, the whole idea of blessing the creator really makes no rational sense at all. Uh, because a person would have to be out of his rational mind to actually do this. Um, because it was through the Creator and His power that any of us uh, and all the stuff that we have in our you know, material wealth and the things we have in the world and everything were created in the first place. So to bless the Creator makes no sense. And if someone reaches this level, then it can be argued. You could say, well, gee, why is this the death penalty? You could argue that they, their existence is no longer of any value because they are so far from perceiving reality that there's no point in them continuing to live. <clears throat> and Maimonides holds that this prohibition applies when any uh, name of God is used. Uh, so that's the idea around blasphemy. It's... Uh, it's, it's not necessarily what we uh, consider, you know, in, in modern terms as just swearing. Uh, it's not a very good idea, and it's not a good use of, uh, philosophically, of the gift of speech that God gave to us. Uh, you know, but for example, simply saying, damn it, is not considered blasphemy. Um, but it's this particular form of the statement, may Josie destroy Josie, uh, that uh, is considered uh, the blasphemic statement. Any questions about blasphemy? Okay, let's move on. Uh, third prohibition is the prohibition against murder. And it's very important to note that the prohibition is against murder. It is not a prohibition against killing. 
those are two different things. Um, and Pat, yes, I see your comment. That's uh, yes, the halakhic definition of blasphemy is very different than than what we were taught in Christianity. Uh, it was a real, uh, I guess, enlightening surprise to me when I first uh, heard that definition of, uh, of what blasphemy is from a halakhic standpoint. Uh, again, very important to note that, that the prohibition in the seven Noahide laws is against murder, not killing, because there is a difference. A soldier acting in a war uh, is not murdering. An executioner who is duly authorized by a, by a lawful court to carry out an execution is not murdering. Uh, that may be killing, but there is a difference. Maimonides states that a Gentile who slays any soul, even a fetus in its mother's womb, should be executed in retribution for its death. Similarly, if he slew a person who would have otherwise died in the near future, which gets to a very interesting point about assisted suicide, placed a person before a lion or starved a person to death, he should be executed uh, for through one manner or other he killed. Uh, similarly, one should be executed if he killed a pursuer when he could have saved the latter's potential victim by maiming one of the pursuer's limbs. So, uh, and you know, you may be familiar with Genesis 9:6. Uh, he who spills human blood shall have his own blood spills, uh, spilled. So, uh, you know, it's it's very uh, it was very careful. Uh, definition here. Note that the above uh, part that I just read equates abortion with murder. And abortion is only permitted in certain instances where the mother's life is threatened. The mother's life is threatened, it's a different story, and I again am not a halakhic authority on this, uh, but generally speaking it's my understanding that abortion is prohibited. Uh, but can be permitted in certain cases where the mother's life is threatened. Now, uh, a very important related point to all of this is that embarrassing someone publicly is considered tantamount to murder. Uh, the sages have said, to put one's neighbor publicly to shame is like shedding blood. Uh, and a man should throw himself into a fiery furnace rather than put his neighbor publicly to shame. You may remember the story in the Torah about Tamar uh, and Judah. Judah is, uh, 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 has sons. Tamar married one of them. Uh, if I recall all the details right, he died. Uh, she was given to a brother uh, to marry. He died. And then Judah said, then wait till my younger son gets older and I'll give him to you uh, as a husband uh, so that you can you know, raise up children. And Tamar saw that um, uh, the son had grown up to be of age, but that Judah wasn't uh, giving her uh, the man as a husband. So she, and the story is quite complicated, and I don't want to go into all the details, but basically she goes and dresses herself up like a prostitute um, and waits out on a, on a corner. Judah comes by, 
propositions her and uh, gets, um, she manages to get his staff and his cloak as uh, down payment, if you will, or, or uh, uh, a deposit for the um, payment that he's going to make when he sends an animal to her. Uh, they have relations. She becomes pregnant. He leaves. Um, she then takes off her widow's garb, goes back to the home, and he goes to send the animal back to the prostitute, who he did not recognize to be his daughter-in-law, and she's no longer there. In the meantime, then her pregnancy begins to show, and word gets back to Judah that his daughter-in-law is pregnant, and he says uh, to have her taken out and burned. Uh, because from his standpoint, apparently, she had been uh, you know, promiscuous. And rather than publicly confront him, she sends the cloak and the staff to him by way of a messenger and says, the person who owns this cloak and the staff, that is the person who is the father of this child. Judah recognizes the cloak and the staff are his and says, uh, if I recall, she is more righteous than I. And she is saved and, and he uh, you know, doesn't have her executed. She is willing to go to debt in order not to publicly embarrass him, which is an amazing thing. She doesn't say, well, you're the guy. She says it is the person who owns this cloak and this staff, uh, I believe, uh, Pamela, you're saying it's a metal on a chain. I'd have to double check the, uh, uh, the, uh, the scripture there. But the point being that rather than name him, she was willing to die in order to avoid publicly embarrassing him. This is an incredibly, incredibly important point. It's very important never to embarrass someone uh, publicly. Um, okay, any questions about murder? Hopefully pretty straightforward. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on to theft. That gets into a number of very interesting things, and we'll uh, try to move through and get these all done before the end of our time here. Uh, theft seems obvious. But let's take a look at the specific commandments from the 613 that might apply uh, to uh, a Noahide. First of all, there's a prohibition against stealing money. Uh, and that generally involves taking money by stealth, uh, sneaking in and, uh, and, and doing it when someone's not looking. Then there is a prohibition against committing robbery. Now, in our vernacular today, we would probably think, well, what's the difference between those? They sound about the same. But this generally involves taking property by force. Robbery is defined as to take by open force and violence anything to which we have no right, according to Maimonides and the commandments. So the first one we've got is stealth. The second one is by force. Then we have a prohibition against uh, fraudulently altering land boundaries. So. You may recall they divided up the land and different people, different tribes got different parts, and then they was broken down into, uh, you know, different parts for different people. And the land boundaries, of course, would become fairly important. So this is about moving land boundaries so that a person can claim that another person's land is his. Uh, this is also interestingly the source of laws against encroaching unlawfully on a neighbor's trade. So if uh, 
there are certain laws around, um, uh, you know, a, a, as an example, uh, if you had a small town that could support one shoemaker and there was a shoemaker in that town, uh, then in certain circumstances it would be considered unlawful for another person to come into that town and open up a shop as a shoemaker, uh, thereby encroaching on that original shoemaker's trade. And the laws, we'd have to look into all the details, but essentially you are not um, allowed to fraudulently move a land boundary. Uh, okay, then there is a prohibition against refusing to pay debt. Uh, so stealing is about taking property secretly. Robbery is about taking property by open force and violence. This is about oppression, such as when you owe someone money and you refuse to pay this. So an example might be that you've withheld the wages of a hired servant or simply refusing to pay a loan to someone when it's due. That's also a form of theft. Um, the, uh, the next one is a prohibition against repudiating our debts, which looks very similar to the one before it, but this is a formal refusal to pay uh, an obligation that uh, we've, we've made. This is, um, or rather, the, the next one, wronging another person in business. Uh, this one is considered extremely important in Torah observance. There's a source that indicates that if a person deals honestly in business and his fellow men are satisfied with his conduct, it is regarded as if he had fulfilled the entire Torah. So business is a very, very important thing, and you have to be very careful about uh, not wronging uh, another person in that regard. Um, and Pat, you've raised an interesting question. Could bankruptcy fall under the category of repudiating our debts? Uh, Possibly, and I would have to consult a halakhic authority on that one. Um, I think, I mean, my, my gut reaction is if you are simply using bankruptcy as a legal means to get out from under something, uh, even if it's hal not halakhically prohibited philosophically, it would not seem to be in keeping with the Torah. Um, if a person becomes totally destitute and simply hasn't got any assets and no way of dealing with it uh, and has to go into bankruptcy, I, I would have to ch check on that one. I, I can't say for certain. Uh, I must tell you that I have run into people in business, one in particular comes to mind, uh, a woman who said um, uh, she had uh, gotten a bunch of capital from people to start a business and if I recall, someone with whom she was dealing uh, double-crossed her or something along that line and ended up losing all the money. And she said, I then spent the next 10 years paying all those people off. And I raised the question to her, you know, I said, they were investors and it was not your fault. And I, I don't think legally she was obligated. But her comment was, you know, how could I possibly take this money from these people and then not make good on it? So there was a person that even though I think they were legally not obligated, and I'm just talking U.S. legality, not Torah legality, uh, she took it upon herself that she felt an obligation to those people and turned around and managed to, you know, pay all of them. 
But again, if you face that situation, I would say absolutely consult a halakhic authority, uh, a rabbi who is very knowledgeable about those kinds of business matters to determine you know, what your options are and what your obligations are. Um, there's a prohibition against planning to acquire another's property. This is very interesting. This gets into uh, occupying our mind with schemes, if you will, to acquire what belongs to someone else. So, um, and, and it has to do with scheming to buy something that we really desire or covet, even if we pay the full price for it. Uh, obviously, there is nothing wrong with seeing something in a store, store and deciding to buy it. But if I see something that belongs to my neighbor and I spend a whole bunch of mental time coming up with various plans and schemes to get him to sell it to me, that's where this prohibition uh, comes into play. There's a closely related one that is a prohibition against coveting or desiring another's belongings. Um, so this commandment prohibits us from spending uh, our thoughts desiring something that belongs to someone else. The previous commandment relates to the actual acquisition of the object. This commandment relates to the desire that underlies that acquisition. So here's how this could work. Uh, a person sees something that somebody else has, and he sets his heart on it and desires it. So at that point, he's violated the commandment not to desire it. Then as he thinks more about it, his love for that object becomes greater until he starts coming up with some plan to get the owner to sell it to him. Maybe he begs the owner or presses him to sell it to him or says, look, I'll give it to you in exchange for something even more valuable. Now he's in danger of violating the previous commandment about not planning to acquire another property. And if he succeeds in that and gets the person to sell it to him, even though he didn't really want to sell, he breaks both of these commandments. Um, but if the owner, because of his love for the object, refuses to sell it to him, and the coveter, because he's got this obsession with it, then seeks to take it by force, now he's also violating the commandment not to rob. So a lot of different things going on there. One, uh, one source, Mechilta, indicates that coveting is the source from which all crime springs. Okay, and a couple of comments. Uh, yep, Mona, I would agree. Uh, she's very much a blessing, an example of uh, people that uh, uh, we would feel honored to, uh, to work with and to follow. Um, yes, Jack, thank you. It was a good story in the Tanakh about... Uh, uh, I think it was King Ahab who was coveting the vineyard of another person uh, and couldn't get it. And finally, uh, his wife uh, ends up perpetrating murder uh, in order to get it. It's amazing what just <laughs> a little coveting will eventually grow into. Um, so a lot of, uh, a lot of potential uh, dangerous stuff that can happen there. Um, there are a couple of other things uh, before I get into those, though. Let's, let's just talk about some, a couple of practical uh, implications uh, here. Suppose you go eat at a buffet restaurant, and you purposely take more than you intend to eat, and then ask for a doggy bag to take it home. 
You know, is that potentially theft? Um, there are some things that are so small that people will let them go by because they don't stop to think about it because they think they don't really matter. Um, you've all probably been in a supermarket where they uh, sell coffee beans by the pound. You know, a lot of coffees out there, various flavored ones, and so there's a whole rack of a bunch of different coffee beans. You get a little bag, figure out what you want, fill it up, weigh it, that kind of thing. I once watched a man in a supermarket sample a coffee bean, and maybe more than one. Now, to the best of my knowledge, there was no sign that said free samples, and his small son was with him. And I remember taking note of it, and you could ask, well, is that potentially an act of theft? And importantly, what did his son learn by watching him? Or the people in, you know, who go in the produce department and think that, okay, it's okay for me to sample you know, a few grapes to find out if I think they're good enough. Now, if there's a clear sign or a clear understanding with the supermarket that, yes, you can sample the produce, that's one thing. But if there is not, hmm, is that stealing? Um, theft, to the best of my knowledge, knows no quantity limit on the on the downside. So a a penny is stealing. Uh, doesn't matter how small it is. If it doesn't belong to us, uh, it falls under that prohibition of theft. And Moni, you said I thought there was a lamb stolen. Uh, this one was a vineyard. Uh, you might, on the lamb story, be thinking of the one where. Um, a fictitious story was told to King David uh, by the prophet to uh, show him the, an error he'd made with regard to Bathsheba. That's the one that comes to mind about uh, a lamb. Um, and you're right, Pat, if everyone sampled the produce, there wouldn't be anything left to sell. Uh, and Linda, that's a very interesting point. You work in a grocery store and you see it all the time. It can do nothing even if we see it done. Uh, that's a very good point. I don't know if you could post a sign that says free samples or maybe even an elaborate sign that said, you know, if everyone takes a sample of the produce, we will not have anything left to sell. You know, contact us if you want to sample something before trying it or something like that. Uh, but you're right. It's something that people think uh, they, in our society, a lot of people, I, I think, think that quantities don't matter and a small amount, gee, what, is it, what does it hurt? If I throw a gum wrapper out the window, what does it matter? And my, I think it was my father taught me, yeah, but what if everybody threw a gum wrapper out the window? You know, pretty soon we'd be up to our, you know, ankles in gum wrappers. So, very good point to consider. Ah, um, uh -huh, very good, Jack. The law in Sodom would allow everyone to take less than a penny, but all would lie. Uh, yeah. But but all would. Did you mean lie and take a penny, or uh, you wrote lying there, so I'm not sure I'm understanding that completely, but uh, I assume you meant with lie and, uh, and take a penny. Uh, Mona, very good question. If a booth of beans is knocked over and everyone around took one, who is guilty? Uh, my understanding of the law would be that everybody's guilty. Uh, every person who took one uh, would be guilty uh, in that particular circumstance. Uh, uh, okay, Jack, thank you. Appreciate that. 
Um, I notice time is running out, and I just want to cover off a quick, couple quick others here so that we can make sure we finish. There is a prohibition, uh, obviously, against kidnapping, which is a form of theft uh, of stealing a person, um, and prohibitions against cheating in uh, weights and measures. In fact, even a prohibition against keeping uh, false uh, weights and measures. Uh, according to uh, Soporno, the uh, 16th century biblical commentator, uh, he commented that God, God abhors not only the actual practice of dishonesty, but also the instruments that enable one uh, to commit it. So if you have those around, uh, then you know, there's obviously a temptation. Um, so it's a very, uh, the whole area here uh, dealing with business uh, and false weights and measures is a very, very important one. Uh, again, gets back to that uh, that area of business um, that we need to study deeply, so that we don't, so that we make sure that we follow the Torah's precepts and don't accidentally uh, commit an act of theft uh, without doing it. And Gail, you asked you asked about time stealing. Uh, I think it it would depend. Not sure what specifically. Uh, you're referring to there in terms of, of time, uh, there could be some situations perhaps where that, uh, where that is that. Uh, and, and then there are perhaps situations where people are using up our time, but it's just perhaps annoying to us. Um, and uh, uh, it, good point, Gail, uh, you know, smoking on the job and, uh, you know, the it's a very interesting point about on-the-job stuff because um, that's one where it gets to be somewhat gray, and you have to, I think, be very, very sensitive to, you know, people are so allowed certain breaks, and that's fine, but gee, are you, is a person taking more of a break than they should? Uh, generally speaking, uh, you know, I think it's probably worthwhile trying to err on the safe side and uh, try to make sure we give uh, our employers uh, everything they're due and, and uh, you know, hopefully even more. Um, let's stop there. I don't want to cut into Jack's time and it's two minutes after uh, 9 o'clock Eastern. But if you do have questions during the week, uh, please let me know. And uh, otherwise, we'll uh, pick up on the rest of the Noah Hyde laws next week. Thank you all very much uh, for joining. And Jack, I'll turn the microphone over to you. Great class, Doug.